Hi, I'm Dave Kittredge, filmmaker in Los Angeles, and this is The Outcast, presented by Outfest, where we have conversations with LGBT creators and allies to discuss their work, their inspirations, their passions, and the challenges of getting our authentic voices heard. And this is part two of our big season finale here at The Outcast, Highlights from Outfest, where I talk to filmmakers behind five feature films at the 2020 Outfest Film Festival that I liked a lot. Last week on part one, I talked to filmmakers behind two films, Tahara, and Cowboys, and this week I'm talking to the filmmakers behind three Outfest feature films, Two Eyes, P.S. Burn This Letter Please, and Drama Rama. And to kick it off, I'd like to welcome Mike Doherty, the director of programming at Outfest. And uh, Mike, let's start with Two Eyes. Two Eyes, our closing night film, we world premiered it. It's kind of a triptych that spans a century of time. There's three different stories from the late 1800s, the 1970s, and present day that deal with the in-between identities throughout sexuality and gender. Um, and how we all tie up together. I mean, it's very Cloud Atlas. It's very The Hours. It's, exactly. It's, it's a lovely movie. Yeah, I was kind of blown away. There isn't really much in the way of narrative cinema that deals with non-binary identity and two-spirit identity and bisexuality and just like the, the fluidness of gender and sexuality in a way that isn't instructive or, or you know... Um, just kind of giving you a lecture about it. It's it's very dramatized. It's very it like lets these characters breathe, and it has such a wonderful cast of actors that span these identities. Kate Bornstein is in the present day um, with uh, with the musician Ryan Casada, who performed at our closing night drive-in, um, and Nakane, who's a fantastic singer. Nakane is the lead actor from the South African film The Wound that was. Uh, Oscar, uh, I think it was shortlisted for the Oscar for foreign film. Um, but they, uh, they, their singing throughout the film kind of is is the connective tissue through the three time periods, and it, it kind of made my heart burst yeah. every time I watched the film. It's it's just it's a hard film to pin down into like an easy one sentence synopsis, but it's, it's it was just something that just it just seemed so one of a kind and so perfect to close a festival with because of its its belief in our community's ability to move forward and heal and and look to the future with hope and and believe that these these stories that haven't been able to be told are going to have their moment. I think one of, one of the most interesting things about this movie is how beautifully it comes together at the end, and it, it, it really does defy description. It takes place in three different time periods that are all intercut together, but really the, the core of this is how every how all of our choices and how we live our life affect things throughout you know, space throughout time uh, in ways that we can't comprehend. And it's a very moving, lovely movie. I really can't recommend it enough. Yeah, and I, I just think it does a beautiful job of, like, letting the emotion carry it rather than, you know, explaining things through dialogue or, like, having, like, here's the plot point where we establish that these two love each other. It's like you feel it rather than you have to, like, hear it from because it's explained via the script. You know, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a different kind of experience, I think. It's, it's yeah. a great movie. So moving on to our documentary that we're showcasing, P.S. Burn This Letter, Please. Now, this movie knocked me on my butt. A lot of people were knocked on their butt by it. It actually won the Audience Award for Documentary for the festival. Um, and I think a lot of people are just taken aback at how emotional a ride it is. Because we um, don't hear these stories. We don't hear no, yeah. these stories at all. There were a lot of films that showed up in the festival this year that really speak to queer history that we hadn't heard before. 
before that, you know, we've always been here, but our stories haven't been able to be told in the way they can now at such volume. Um, the impetus for this documentary is a treasure trove of letters that were found. He was gay and he had a lot of friends in the late 50s, early 60s in New York, like from kind of like the gay scene, you know, they were all scraping by, you know, mm. and they were doing stuff like, you know, stealing wigs from the Metropolitan yeah. and all sorts but of yeah, other was... crazy stuff. But but all of these letters detailed their lives and we have never heard stories like this before. Yeah, and I mean, it was, to be more specific, it was friends who were very much in the drag scene or the female impersonation scene, the the terms that they kind of preferred to use back in the 50s and 60s. It's very pre-Stonewall era New York gay scene that you, you don't have this kind of history, this kind of um, documentation of prior to this film. And it, it, it's just, and the incredible thing is how many of these people were still alive to be interviewed for the film. I was thrilled to see that because yeah. you, you tend to think that like, you know, most gay men died in the eighties and the early nineties mm. through, through HIV. But uh, the, the majority of the people in these letters or, or at least half, uh, and they're they're in their 80s, so this is, yeah, this is late a while 80s, ago. Some yeah, late some 80s, 90s, 90s yeah. And, but they're still around. They're still alive. Yeah. They're they're and we have the interviews with them talking about their gay lives in New York at the time, and it's like. I, I just feel like this movie should be mandatory viewing for every yeah. gay man in the country. I mean, it's, and it's just, just amazing. And it, yeah, and it's incredible to just see some of the the influence that their culture had that is still living today. Like, they they use, like, vocabulary that they used back then. Like, we, we called them trade. And it's like, trade is still very much a word that is used in, like, the drag scene and the gay scene. Right. Um, but I don't think like you ever trace the origins back that far. Like you, you would, you would think like, oh, it's just something we say. Um, uh, it's pretty great. Yeah. Let's move on to one of my very favorites. Uh, certainly uh, the most fun of all five of these titles and a movie that, that also got me choked up at the end in a completely unexpected way. Dramarama. It's so funny. Like I think Dramarama is the very first feature we invited to Outfest Back when we thought the festival would look, I know, like when we thought like the festival was completely different from what it. No, I think like it would just been decided that like we were moving to August and like we're gonna like uh, we had these notions that like oh you know we're gonna be able to go back into theaters by August Um, and yeah yeah, it was just so like I have just this long history of emails with the director Jonathan Waisaki of like yeah we'll get theaters we can maybe and then it turned into like probably online then maybe a drive-in we wound up getting a drive-in screening for it it's great but um I was there uh, and it's it's so much fun and I I wish that it played a DGA one I wish that it had a a packed house because it would have brought down the freaking house this movie it would have yeah and I think it's just <laughs> there are, especially like I remember telling Jonathan like you you wrote this movie directly to me right <laughs> because oh, me too. this is this me is too. like it's a it, you know it's set in the I think 1994 in California amongst a group of like high school friends who have graduated and they're about to go to college and they're having their last they're the, dra- they're the drama nerd kids and they're having their last murder mystery sleepover party uh, before everyone goes off to college and the the lead kid played by Nick Puliisi, who I think you're interviewing as well. Yes, he yep. is trying to come out to his friends um, and doesn't know if he's going to be able to do it uh, by the end of this party. But uh, it's just <laughs> uh, it's like the kids like I was just, like the kids, you know, they're always dropping references to like Clue the movie and Stephen Sondheim and and. And it's like, and what I love about it is like, they don't always call out like what the reference is like, but if you were one of those kids, like, you know exactly what they're talking about. (laughs) And and you're just like, and it's just like, it's, it's lovely to watch and painful to watch because you recognize yourself in it so much if you grew up gay in that era. Um, And especially gay and 
raised Catholic like I was. Um, it was just, it was just like I identified so hard with so many of the things happening like that because like one of Me the elements too. of the film, one of the elements of the film is that the lead character, his other friend who he's kind of got the crush on is also clearly going to discover his own sexuality, um, but is not even as far as advanced as the lead in, in being ready to face it. Um, and just kind of like the reactive way he has of like defending himself when he thinks oh, he hears hilarious. a straight, when it's he thinks like... he hears a straight comment that is commenting on his sexuality and gets super <laughs> defensive. I'm like, oh my God, that is, that is what all of us went through in the 90s. I, yeah. I identify with this movie so hard and I, it's very rare that I can say that a movie made me like, like double, double over with laughter and yet the ending like. Oh, it's so mm. good. This movie, yeah. I want people to see this movie so bad. Mm -hmm. It's just a delightful movie. It's like it's like mm -hmm. one of those movies that like I'm glad we have festivals because these are the movies that you find there. Exactly, festivals, yeah. you know, promote them and then they get out there and then hopefully people see them and get word of mouth. But that's, you know, that's why festivals are important. Thank you. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> And welcome writer, producer, editor, director Travis Fine and star and executive producer Kate Bornstein of the movie Two Eyes, which was Outfest's closing night movie. Thank you so much. Although, I can't really call you star, Kate, because this is a very much an ensemble piece. It's totally an ensemble piece, but you can call me a star anytime. <laughs> you're, you're, you're totally a star. Um, this, this is a really, really interesting movie, and it's not a, you know, kind of a straightforward narrative. Travis, why don't you tell us like kind of what the movie is and, and how you kind of came to write it. Well, it's it's a cinematic triptych. It's it's basically a three panel piece, three different time periods, 1868, 1979, and 2020, uh, all ultimately woven into one single narrative. And I started with the 1868 portion and out of the ether came uh, this voice, this therapist talking to me in my ear in modern present day, which ultimately ended up being Kate's character. And from that, uh, the 1979 portion was built and and there we were. Did you know Kate before before this project? No, I actually finished writing the project and I had a conversation with my manager and he said, how are you gonna cast this thing? I said, I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. So I, um, I started with a Google, God bless Google, uh, and the guys who started Google all those years ago when I never understood what it meant to have a search engine and why that would be valuable, but now I do because you know, as I started to Google trans actresses, I, I found a lot of folks that were in their you know, 20s and 30s, and I said, yeah, but I need this, this therapist, this woman who's older and wise. And uh, I saw, I don't even remember when I first saw Kate, but then I saw a trailer for a documentary um, that she had done with, uh, with Sam Fader. Yeah, Kate Bornstein is a queer and pleasant danger. It's, it's fantastic. And we had Sam on the show uh, mm. earlier this season to talk about his amazing, amazing documentary, Disclosure, yes. which... And Two Eyes, it, it, it's very difficult to describe. Um, it's kind of like a mini Cloud Atlas. I'm sure this has come up a lot. You hear Cloud Atlas a lot. But because but, these, these are these interwoven stories, three interwoven stories from three time periods. And it's only, and, and I don't feel this is a spoiler, uh, toward the end when you begin to see how they're all coming together and they're all mm. interlinked. And the power of this movie is just... It, it, it really sneaks up on you. What, did you start with that kind of concept? No, not at all. It was a straightforward narrative. 1868, an artist goes to, to 
native territories to paint. That's how it, that was sort of the inception, the beginning. And I had not heard Cloud Atlas. That's actually the first time somebody, somebody's oh, referenced God. it. So, yeah. Somebody I, mean, I love Cloud Atlas, so, so I do it's too. a compliment yeah. for me. So, yeah. yeah, no, I, I take it as one. And I, I, somebody else had mentioned the hours, which is another sort of oh, triptych, yeah. Yeah, yeah. which is three time periods. Um, but, uh, but no, it started as a single narrative in 1868, and, and the, the three time periods grew out of it. And as I wrote each one of those as individual scripts, um, I, I realized I sort of stacked them up side by side and realized that they were, even though they were different in length, they all had a sort of similar number of sequences. And from there, I just started like a bread maker, almost kind of weaving the three together into this sort of single strand. One of the things that I do with my creative friends and, and mentoring other creatives who are kind of up and coming is talk about how you really need the story to let it tell you what it wants to be. And if, and if this is how Two, Two Eyes came about, um, that's really astonishing because, like, if you hadn't, if you had kept some kind of inflexible, like, like, no, it has to be this or it has to be that, it wouldn't have evolved into this thing where these three stories, these three time periods beautifully and movingly come together toward the end of this film and make this impact that's just like, you know, you thought you were watching these things, but it's like, no, we're all interrelated, we're all connected, and all of these things that we do, all of these choices we make have impact that goes far beyond what we can comprehend. Yeah, well, that's, uh, it's interesting because the, those are some of the life lessons I've been working on and learning in my own personal life, so, um, you know, it's it's quite interesting that this that this film came out of the, that experience and sort of some of those life lessons that I was working through as, as a person, as a human. Well, Travis, I want to talk about your career because this is, this is an interesting career. I did some research on you. And uh, okay, so you started off in the business as an actor and you were in some pretty notable movies, you know, The Thin mm -hmm. Red Line, Girl Interrupted. Um, then you became a pilot. Correct. What, what led you to aviation in that, at that point in your life? So uh, I had an acting teacher who asked me what I was afraid of, and I thought he was asking about art, and he said, no, I'm talking about life. What are you afraid of? And I hesitated, and he said, that. What was that thought that just went through, went through your mind? I said, well, it's not the right thought, but planes. He said, why? And I said, I've always been terrified that I would die in a plane. I've had plane death dreams, and he said, go fly. Yes. And I said, no. And he said, go over to Santa Monica Airport, go get in a little plane. And if you don't, don't come back to my class next week. And the threat of not being let back into the class led me to go fly in a little tiny plane. I was terrified. I got nauseous. Little Cessna. Little Cessna. So I went and took the initial flight lesson and I was kind of terrified, but I, but I became really determined that I wasn't going to let the fear rule me. So I started taking flight lessons to learn how to become an actual pilot. And, um, I would get nauseous, I would throw up, I was terrified, I was scared, but, I, but the more I did it, the more I sort of fell in love with it and ultimately had a flight instructor who said, do you plan to do this professionally? And I said, no, I've got to be an Air Force guy. And ultimately I, I learned about the path to become an airline pilot. And um, right about that time, I worked on one of the last acting projects I ever did, which was just this terrible movie with... <laughs> which we won't... Are we not naming it? We're not, we won't name it, but, but the thing is, is right before I went to the premiere, I, I read online that two million people were going to die in sub-Saharan Africa that, that summer from starvation. And off I went to the premiere of a movie that was, you know, a $30 million film, and they're going to spend another $20 million in prints and advertising. And I said right. that $50 million would have saved every one of those people. Right. And I couldn't connect the dots anymore 
with, with going and, and working and saying lines in projects that I didn't believe in. And I said, if this is what this is, if this is what this career is, if this is what acting is, I, I don't want to do it. So I went and enrolled in a flight academy and about a year and a half, two, two years later, I was sitting at 36,000 feet with my feet up, drinking a cup of coffee in the flight deck of an airline. And you had directed a number of shorts like in the 90s, correct? Yeah. But, but, your, but your first feature, was your first feature any day now? Uh, no, it was not. My first feature, we don't talk about. It's kind of like having a child who's in prison. <laughs> no, it's, it's like, you know, when you have a child who's in prison and everybody says, where's John? And you Listen, go, well, you this know. Is, this is an ongoing theme, at least one of the other filmmakers that I've talked to. Because, uh, you know, and, and we had a very long conversation about how kind of like you're going to have a number of works in you as a creative that you just have to do even if they're terrible or they don't right. like meet the expectations that you're going to meet you just have to do them and you have to finish yes. them and i think one of the impediments of a lot of like up and coming creatives is they have this misguided belief that everything has to be fantastic yeah well and i consider that first film i mean a lot of people went to film school i didn't i went to film i went to the new york film academy which is a, you know it's an 8 10 week program it's very different than film school my first film was my film school it's where i learned all the lessons it's where i tripped and fell and slipped and tripped and you know the it's thing ultimately got yeah yeah and it really truly was and uh but that was 1997 and so uh, there was a little bit of a break between 1997 and 2008 when I came back and made the space between with uh with Melissa Leo um is when we started production on that such a fantastic actress yeah and Kate I mean your career goes all the way back to the 80s. And basically, were you caught up in the NEA stuff with Maplethorpe? What was it, the Reagan administration came down on uh, all art and tried to defund the NEA, or was that uh, the first Bush? Uh, no, it was Reagan, and it was um, Jesse Helms. Senator yeah. Jesse Helms uh, was, was the bad guy, and they defunded the National Endowment for the Arts um, because of its queer content which, and, and this was at the height of queer performance art. We were, we were traveling, there were bunches and bunches of us traveling around the country doing solo shows and queer performances, and it threatened to dry up. And then you turned to writing. Yeah, I had to make a living somehow. <laughs> but it's amazing, your body of work is, is just astonishing. So like, let's get back to, to Two Eyes. How did you come about this film? Yeah, um, I got a call out of the blue from Travis, and I was was sitting there, and I said, "Sure, we can talk." And I got my partner Barbara Corrales on the phone, and two of us are listening to Travis pitch this thing for about a half an hour, and I'm going, "Wait a minute, this sounds really good because you don't really know what this film is about." Um, is it about the Wild West? Is it about uh, 70s? Is it about right. modern-day Laramie? And that kind of mirrors the, the content of the wibbly-wobbly identities in LGBTQ. It's about That's the true. B. It's about the T. It's about the Q. And we don't know when we meet a B, a T, or a Q, we don't know what they are. And they present as one thing. Maybe they're another. Maybe they're another. And that intrigued the hell out of me. I'm going, whoa, this is not just a straightforward film. Another, you know, okay, used to be a man, now is a woman. Uh, used to be a this, now is a that. <laughs> no, much more fucking complex. 
And I, I was, I loved it. And the script made oh, me cry. Oh, it made me choke. The film made me choke up at the end. I mean, it was yeah. just, it was just really very lovely and powerful. Um, but it's really interesting because that was one of the things that struck me about it. Because of the three timelines, like the Wild West one is is largely a, a gay one or a queer one, maybe a bi one. Um, and then the middle one is mostly gay, I guess. And then the last one, the one that you're in, is is largely a trans narrative. Um, and it's not just a trans narrative, though. It's kind of queer. It's kind. It's is it FTM? Is it MTF? It's. It really kind of encapsulates so much of the the LGBTQIA. You know, kind of like a lot of a lot of the letters are checked off in this movie. A lot of them are, and because the letters are all in motion, it it is most beautifully portrayed in this film. I, I haven't seen another film that actually captures the motion involved in an identity of being bisexual, uh, in being trans and non-binary, or in being queer. I haven't seen that. I'm just, wow. No, me neither. And it's cool enough to translate into mainstream. It's like, and, and then people go, wait, what did I just see? And they're too busy crying. Yeah, you can't, you can't pigeonhole it. I mean, you know, that, which is why I led with like, okay, Travis, you, t you talk about what this movie's about because the majority of people who are hearing this are just hearing kind of like, these are, the, you know, kind of the notable, I, I don't want to say the best films at Outfest because that's kind of exclusionary, but it's like five of the best films of Outfest, uh, certainly. And, uh, and it's just, it's hard to kind of like, just like put one little dot on this film. You just have to kind of see it. Well, I, I will tell you what, when I first uh, uh, pitched it and sent the script to what is now my ex-manager, uh, a lovely fellow. <laughs> oh no, is there, a, is there a story there? <laughs> There's a story there, but, but, but one of the, you know, when, you, you know, when a relationship breaks up, there's usually a number of things. And, um, you know, he read the initial script and said, look, I don't, I don't like it. I think you need to just do the 1868 portion. We'll cast a movie star, you know, right. uh, we'll, we'll get Army Hammer to play. You know, I mean, it was like one of those conversations where you go, come so when he read the script, he said, okay, so I don't get it. So give me the elevator pitch so I can pitch it to somebody. And I said, are you kidding me? The <laughs> elevator pitch? <laughs> I want to say, I of said, all the films I, I saw at Outfest, this was the one film that like really kind of pushes back against an elevator pitch. It does. Well, I said, I said, I said well, give me the elevator pitch for Roma. I, I couldn't pitch Roma. Give me the elevator pitch for Moonlight. And I said, I'm not saying that my film is going to be an Academy Award winning film, but the last two films that won Best Picture, I don't think are an easy elevator pitch. And I think that's what audiences are looking for. Parasite isn't either. Yeah. Parasite isn't either. I, pitch yeah. me Parasite. Yeah. So, so you know, the closest I've heard to an elevator pitch, USA Today said it's This Is Us meets Brokeback Mountain. I go, Ooh. okay, well, there's your, there's your elevator pitch. It's Think This of... Is Us meets, right? <laughs> but but one, of, one of my favorite things when we finished my last film, Any Day Now, and we were doing the press junket and Alan Cumming, he would say, you know what I love about this movie? It's just different. Like, you walk into Blockbuster, there's like action, adventure, comedy, weepy gay period dramas with Down Syndrome children. <laughs> it's like, that's, there's one section with one little film, out of film. So I, I would love to hear Alan's sort of one little section in Blockbuster for two eyes. Can we get, can we get him on the phone, please? Because you, by the way, you just made my day with that impression. That was really funny. And I'd do it with him over my shoulder, though, so you can't oh, no, see I, it I, on, I, I on the podcast, but... <laughs> I didn't. I didn't discern any disrespect in it. I just. I just. I was like that. That sounds exactly like Alan Cumming. That's hilarious. Oh, I love Alan in his weepy gay period drama. Hi. <laughs> so listen, this is this is an ambitious freaking movie. You have the vistas of the 1800s um, in the in that section. Uh, you have period stuff in the 70s. 
Um, I mean, how can I just ask how many days you shot? Because it had to be okay. So we had a uh, initially on a 19 day schedule. Oh my goodness! And the last the last night we were scheduled to shoot in a car wash in Shelby, Montana, and the car wash didn't work. The lights weren't on, and I shut production down for the night. And we came back for what was ultimately our 20th day. And the the, the some of the most iconic images in the entire film, the opening song was not scripted, was not supposed to be in the movie. Wow. The images of, of the... the uh, That's a lovely way to open the movie, by the way. That that song is yeah, really lovely. Yeah, and I knew the song. I just didn't know. I didn't, um, you know, and I just asked Ryan. We, we literally had rapped, and I said, hey, Ryan, will you just play the song and let us film it? And I didn't even know where we would put it. I had no idea. Um, but that, the the love scene with Jalyn and uh, Ceylon was not scripted. was supposed to happen in a car wash, in a in a... In a car the, the images of them walking through the wheat fields the uh, the the lightning strike and the kiss all of these things happened that were not supposed to happen we were supposed to have wrapped the night before and so when you talk about releasing and letting be uh, that's one of the great lessons that I learned as a person and, and as a filmmaker as a producer it was an exceptionally powerful lesson to say okay I'm not going to get this car wash scene that I envisioned okay so we're going to come back tomorrow and we will see what we get. And what we got were some of the most iconic magical images of the movie that had the car wash worked, we never would have been in the film. So I think there is a great uh, responsibility and, and importance of having a plan and implementing the plan, but having that flexibility, flexibility to Flexibility, yeah. This is, this, is, this is actually, this is the refrain on this episode from all of these independent filmmakers. It's like, yes, have a plan, but pivot, be flexible, yes. tweak things, uh, try things. Um, yes. You know, the fact that some of the most arresting images, because when I think about the film, there are several images that come to mind. Some of them that you just said were not scripted. They were after, technically after rap. You just grabbed them, you stole them. Yes. And, and, and uh, you know, having the, the I, I guess the smarts as, as I was in the editing process, because this is the first movie I've cut by myself. My last two films, Tom Cross was my editor and Tom went on to oh, win an Oscar. Oh, no for, slack there. My God, Tom Cross. Right? Yes. He's, he's uh, by the way, everyone, he's an Oscar winner for Whiplash. He's Damien Chazelle's editor. Very sweet guy. He's oh, yeah. a really lovely, lovely man. So I reached out to Tom. I said, Tom, I know I can't afford you anymore, but you know, I'm doing this little film. And he goes, Trav, I'm cutting the James Bond movie. So I said, <laughs> well, sh I said, you is know, you your salary is probably our budget, so I don't think I. <laughs> so, so this was the first one I I've, I ventured on my own and uh, as an editor, and so obviously there was a learning curve with it with the technical side of it, but also to to not have another voice to bounce and another brain like Tom, that genius storyteller brain that we would bounce back and forth between ourselves. Um, and what I found is there were a couple of gaps and a couple holes in the script that needed to be filled in. Uh, right, Kate's Kate's Barbara. Partner Barbara actually brought up a, a, a gave us a wonderful note that led directly to the the sequence with the the sort of the group therapy session that Kate does. That oh, was that's ultimately great. That's yeah. great. Yeah, that's yeah. a great scene. And, and and that was me and the DP and a couple lab mics and Kate and Ryan and some background at the LGBT LGBT Center in Brooklyn um, because we needed to you know we needed to expand that storyline and the the. Um, some of the stuff of the Jalen smashing the guitar and taking the pills. I mean, these are things, there were little holes that needed to be filled in sort of after the fact. Right. Um, you discover that stuff. That's what, that's what post-production is about. Yeah, you do. Kate, you are, in effect, your character is the heart of this film. You're, you're a therapist and you're in Laramie, Wyoming, which is, 
a town that has great resonance for LGBT people. Um, and you are basically, your, your section of the film involves you counseling and, and somewhat mentoring um, a young, uh, I, I guess what appears to be a, a trans man, a young trans man, because because he identifies himself as he, him pretty early on. Um, but the way that you approach it in the film is so empathetic and so heartfelt did, did you have to prepare it all like for this role or or did it just kind of come instinctively good question um the script did it I, the script just pointed the direction for both um both of us when ryan and i first met uh, one of the first things ryan told me was that he trained as a method actor stanislavski and I went, oh, so did I. And we bonded there. And Travis gave us point A. You're, you're here at point A. You're going to point B. This is where you're going. And here's a few words to get you started. And then he let the camera roll. And we were able to do a lot of work in that fashion. And we both responded to it. Uh, both of the characters are very close to who we are. And so, no, there wasn't much preparation for the role. I went, oh, this role sings to me. The, the, this therapist, this taking care of queer kids, it's what I love to do. So Travis saw that and, and wrote to my strength, I think. I have no doubt that there are going to be younger LGBTQIA folks who see this film and are lives are going to be changed. I really do believe that because this is one of those movies that really resonates on a, on a very deep level. Before we go, I do want to talk about one other thing that struck me as just one of the, besides the cinematography, which is great. Let's give a shout out to the cinematography because this is just a gorgeous looking movie. I, I assume, did you shoot on the Alexa? Because it just looks absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, we shot on the Alexa LF. It's it just, it's a fantastic looking movie. But I want to talk about the casting. Because every single performer in this movie is just note perfect as far as casting. And I'm thinking especially of, um, you know, there's a scene where in the 70s where a, a, a white gay man is talking about how he met his lover. And it's a monologue. It's It goes on for like a minute, minute and a half. So it's not like a huge, it's not a, like a show-stopping monologue. But it's just so lovely and moving and it really, there are these moments throughout the film, and that's one of them that just anchors the movie so well. Can mm. you just talk about how you cast this? Because, like, you really just hit bullseyes just across the board. The casting process started with Kate. Kate was the very first person cast. Um, and from there, I, I found Ryan. Um, there were a couple of old friends, uh, people that I've worked with before, uh, who signed on immediately um, and I asked to play roles. I've got my little company of actors that I love working with. And then I started work with my casting director, Jeremy Gordon, really to find the two leads in the 1979 portion, the G uh, Gabriel and Allison, and Gordon, to find... Uli Schlesinger, the moment that this actor yeah. steps, is on screen, you know exactly who he is and what he... Like, yes. exactly. And that is... If you can do that, if you can just introduce a character... And within like 10 seconds, you know, you just know him. That is yes. great casting. Yes. 
Well, he's also, he has the absolute inability to give a false moment. He's, he's, a, he's a brilliant young actor. I mean, he's truly, and I knew when I saw, he, he, I saw his audition for this movie, and it was good. Um, I find auditions to be, uh, particularly taped auditions, to be a really shitty way of casting a movie. They're just, I think they're terrible. Because well, it's, who it's can, tough. Every actor will tell you, yeah. every casting, like even directors will be like, it's touch and go. It gives you an idea, but it can't give you the full idea. And, and we, yeah. we should also talk about Jessica Lane too, because like both of them are just fantastic. Well, the interesting thing about Jessica's character is on paper, you say, well, you say she's perfect for the role, but on paper, it was a punk Caucasian French girl. No way. <laughs> that's, that's who Alison no was. No way. And Jessica, and just so everyone knows, Jessica Lane is an African, African-American or is she? No, uh, she's, you're, bl- she's from black, the UK. Black English. Yeah, but yeah from the UK. that's very far from, from a character that you describe. Well, well he, here's the thing. I, I, I kept seeing auditions of girls, and, and she was, again, this punkish young French girl, this waifish punk French girl. And then I said to Jeremy, I said, let's open it up uh, across the board, just foreign. She doesn't have to be French. She can be English. She can be Italian. She can be Swedish. It's just she's, she's this other person coming from this other world. And I saw Jessica's audition for Beale Street, um, in which she was, you know, it was her and I think one other girl who was down for the, for the lead role in Barry Jenkins' uh, Beale Street, and the right. performance was brilliant. And I said, please have this girl read for me. She read, we were, in, we were scouting in, in Montana. I saw her audition, and I said, that's the girl. And so then it was about me, the writer, having to take out uh, you know, sort of the French isms and calling everybody dude and things like that. And all of a sudden, instead, now instead of dude, it's babe, you know, so, and Jessica took care of a lot of that. She threw a lot of babes out there. She, uh, come on, babe, let's go, babe. <laughs> yeah, but by doing that, you've opened the door to something even richer than what you thought of. Well, when they, yeah, when they talk about either colorblind or genderblind casting, uh, hiring the best actor for the, I mean, she was far and away the best actor that I saw for the part without question and so then it's incumbent on me to either be a a, you know stubborn ass and say no she's got to be young and white and French and punky or I can cast the best damn actress and I did so okay like what what's next for you I'm I'm doing that you know because of coronavirus uh I'm back to performance work I'm doing a solo show virtually and it's getting booked in colleges and universities and that's my acting right now I have an ongoing character in Blacklist, and I'm hoping they'll write another script with me in it. And I can't wait for Travis to write something else. I'm me neither. And Travis, what are you up to? Well, we're uh, obviously we're sort of knee deep in trying to get this thing sold and make sure that the the world can see it. Um, I, I have no doubt this is going to get picked up. Yeah, I, I I I go to sleep every night very comfortable that this film will have a life and a space and a place. Um, and then going forward, uh, actually headed back to Montana uh, to shoot a period piece uh, set in 1918 during the pandemic. Oh my God! Uh, it'll be a, it'll be quite interesting. It'll be quite an interesting project. You certainly don't make your life any easier by doing stuff like that. But I cannot wait to see it. That sounds really <laughs> fascinating. Would you ever consider going back in front of the camera? I'm going to in the next one. Oh, good. Okay, cool. No, you know what? I've been in a 12-step program for actors for about 20 years. And, and every time I go to the meetings and I go, hi, <laughs> I'm Travis and I'm an actor. And they go, hi, Travis. And I go, it's been 20 years since my last job. And they go, yay! <laughs> so um, I'm going to fall off the wagon. And not really because I, 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 I guess I feel a little bit of an urge to because obviously I'm doing it. But really it, it becomes about logistics. I mean, shooting in, you know, with COVID and... One less person means one less 
concern. And, and because we're going to sort of hunker down in one spot together as a small, tight-knit little group, uh, by me playing one of the leads, I, it means, again, just another mouth that I don't have to feed, another person I don't have to house, and more importantly, another person I don't have to worry about infecting. This is Indie Film 101. This is great, with the, minus the infection part. So hopefully that'll, <laughs> <laughs> that'll, that'll, be, that'll be gone at some point uh, in the next year or two. And my son is going to play the lead. So the, Wow, the oh, that's great. That's fantastic. Has he ever acted before? He was, uh, he was the, the, the child. The, the two kids in the 1868 portion are my kids. Oh, oh at the beginning. Yeah, when he hugs them goodbye. And Amber, who played the, uh, the wife in the 1800s, is also going to have a, a nice prominent role in this new one. She's a Montana-based. actress and and horse wrangler so we have need of horses so she's going to have a nice important role in this one as well well i just can't tell you how thrilled i am that you guys can make it thank you so much kate bornstein travis fine for the movie two eyes thank you so much for being on the outcast thank you david thank you for having us thank you david and thank you kate know more about Outfest? Of course you do. You're listening to this podcast. Outfest is the only LGBTQIA arts, media, and entertainment nonprofit organization in the world whose programs empower artists, communities, and filmmakers alike to transform the world through their stories, while also supporting the entire life cycle of their career from outset to legacy. And what that means is, it is one of the largest LGBT film festivals in the world and one of the largest film festivals in North America. Also, Outfest has a tremendous number of programs for young filmmakers, as well as archivists preserving gay stories for all time. It is a truly outstanding organization. And especially right now, we would love your help. Please go to outfest.org and learn how you can become a member of this fantastic organization. From the documentary, P.S. Burn This Letter, Please, please welcome writer-directors Michael Seligman and Jennifer Teixeira, as well as producer Craig Olson. Welcome. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So this documentary just knocked me on my butt. I really loved it. Um, well, one of the directors, I'm not going to choose which, uh, talk to, you know, tell us what this movie's about. Well, <laughs> okay. Uh, the movie. I, want, I, wanted to, I wanted to see who steps up. Uh, uh, well, I'm trying to think of it in a, just a, a quick soundbite. Uh, the movie is about, you know, it, uh, we discovered a box of letters that were written in the 1950s by a group of New York City drag queens, and that was the kind of uh, starting point to send us on this journey to uncover a part of gay history, a part of drag history that has never uh, been explored before. Now, Craig, you're the person that found these letters? Yes, I found the letters back in 2014, and they came out of a storage unit uh, that was uh, from a dear friend of ours. And when I opened this box of letters and I started to read the content, I almost felt like I should not be reading these letters because they're so personal and they talk about a lot of very personal things. But immediately I knew they were special and they were, you know, just the language of the letters and the language of the words. And I thought I would do something really fun with them, like do little stage readings at my house and just kick them around. And I called Michael Seligman over and I said, Michael, you've got to get here. You've got to read these letters. And there's like over 200 letters. And they're all written to a man named Reno Martin. And we started to do some research and we realized that no place has anything like this, that we were literally sitting on a little pile of gold. Mm -hmm. And 
I love the art form of drag. Uh, it's, um, it's something I do personally. And just to be able to find this little treasure trove, we knew that this was important. And we knew this was bigger than just little stage readings in my house and passing them around the dinner table and laughing and reading. And we decided that this should be a documentary. We'd never mo- made a documentary before, Michael and I. So we just were like, we just put everything to the, to the wall and, see, and saw what stu- you know, stuck. And it was remarkable, this little Wizard of Oz journey and all these little people that, these people that came along for this journey. And then our little family grew and Jen came on board and she really helped with the amazing structure of the story. And it was, it was truly a labor of love. I swear to God, I've seen the movie 150 times and every time I'm crying <laughs> at the end, you know. Beca- I was and, crying at and the throughout. end. Because we don't it, see stories like this because game gay stories are generally discarded or destroyed because you know yep. if someone passes on the families find their letters or find them stuff and a lot of the time they just torch them burn them uh destroy them because you know there's a shame thing and also they just don't understand the value probably uh right. but but this is like this is so rare to see this kind of glimpse into this entire world with all these people and and many of them which which absolutely stunned me many of them were still alive and you got them on camera right we yeah did. we were really yes. we, yeah we were really surprised by that because we thought for sure that maybe a lot of these people because we did the math in our head when these letters were written I how thought, old I they thought were that most the of them AIDS, were dead yeah yeah that aids possibly would have knocked uh many of these people out and we thought we'd be fortunate if we even found one but thanks to michael seligman he found the very first person probably two years into the process of this documentary and that and and that's when the ball really started to roll so, Michael, who was the first person you found? Uh, we found Michael first, uh, and it took a while to get him to uh, just agree to do anything on camera. Just agree to meet, first of all, and then right. to agree to, to, to be on camera. Um, well, t- and tell everybody, tell everybody kind of who Michael is and was. He um, was a, like a very central figure in in this group of, of drag queens that, that were writing these letters and, um, you know, once we found him, uh, you know, we were kind of off to the races in terms of, of, uh, of, you know, realizing like we could, we could make a film here. And it was really when Jen came on board that we really hit the gas and went from, I think we had, uh, two or three interviews with drag queens and then, uh, you know, Jen really helped us and, and the help of a, of a, of a private detective to oh, that always helps. another six drag queens to the mix and jen can speak about that yeah jen you came on and you're also one of the editors were you the first editor or were you did you did you come on after the first like how did how did you because i get the sense that you were kind of promoted to co-director uh yeah so basically when i met michael he had sent me a few clips that they had put together um some of them you know some of our some of them were the the historians who were I don't know, the historians in our, in our film are extraordinary. And, and this is actually the first time that George Chauncey and Esther Newton and Michael Henry Adams and and Joe Jeffries, they've all appeared in a film together, uh, Robert Korber. So um, that was just very exciting in itself. Um, the There was two queens of that, there was little scenes cut together that I saw. And when I saw those two scenes, I said, if you want to make that movie, I'll make that movie with you. Because this, in my mind, was the gay 13th. This was a whole decade of queer history that had never been 
um, explored that just that I'd never even seen. And, you know, as Michael said, anything pre-Stonewall was pretty non-existent when we started this journey. Yeah. When quickly yeah. after that, we started talking and, you know, I think Michael discovered that the vision that I had for his film was very similar to his and um, and his partners, Craig and Richie. And um, we said, let's let's kind of re not start over, but let's just kind of reconfigure and and head in this direction. And that's what we did. And we spent the next you know three years uh, tracking down the rest of the queens in the film, the other six queens, not to mention about 40 never before seen archives. Um, so I had started piecing the film together pretty early, obviously, in my head as we were doing interviews and stuff. But I edited, I co-edited with uh, another amazing editor named Alex Bose, um, who's, you know, my my little work partner in crime, who is insanely <laughs> talented. So um, it was it was good. I think as a as a director, it's really important to also make sure that you have another partner in crime as an editor, because it's. Uh, it's good to have people. Uh, it's good to have good people. Exactly. Really. I mean, exactly. Especially, especially on a project like this, because I don't think, I mean, people who don't do documentaries sometimes don't understand how long it takes. Like, why like Craig, it was what, three, four years it took to make this? Uh, it took uh, a total of uh, five plus years to, wow. to make this documentary from start to basically finish. And uh, it, it was just, it was a remarkable journey. Uh, it was, it was so eye-opening because as queer people, we don't know our history. Nobody teaches us our history. And if right. we're lucky enough to meet somebody older to kind of guide us through. But otherwise, we knew that there, that what the story we were telling, we knew was going to be very important because you had one chance to tell it right. And we wanted to be so true to these people that are in the movie, the, the Queens and their stories. And I, we just, Michael and I just were in chills when we were like knocking on somebody's door and letting them know that we found a box of letters that they had written to Reno Martin, you know, <laughs> 60 plus years earlier. And they were like, what? I mean, could you imagine at the end of your life, you're done. You're pretty you're, much you're hanging it up. You're in your late 80s. Yeah, these people and are in their late 80s or some some of them are in their early 90s, right? Early 90s, And yeah. it's like, here, look at the 50 years ago or more, I'm sorry, 60 and years to, ago. to have somebody knock on your door and say, you're interesting and your words have inspired me and they will inspire generations to come just because of your experience. And it took some convincing to do with this with many of our uh, queens in the movie, but I know that they're so happy we did. And I am so thrilled that we were able to tell their stories and really unveil this hidden queer history. Yeah, I, w I wish... Um, you know, another, you know, curse this pandemic. I wish there could have just been a moment where they could have been on stage and gotten the applause that they so richly deserve. Well, that's what we were, we're still we, we had up. been planning. I, I on, so yeah. want that. Yeah, yeah, we had planned to, our, our premiere was supposed to be at the Tribeca Film Festival. And I think, what do we have, Jen? Like five or six of our nine queens, plus mm -hmm. all of our historians were going to be there. And we just... We're so thrilled to be able to really give them a moment where they could stand up and be recognized because, you know, they didn't think what they were doing was heroic. You know, in, in hindsight, we, th we think of them as heroes and, and, right. and for so many reasons, for what they did, for living so long, for being so brave to tell their stories, you know, especially 
Um, you know, people like Terry Noel, who's, you know, were oh. so sensitive to her story and the, and her continued struggles of, you know, like being a person that, you know, not a lot of people, uh, you know, um, either, there's a lot of anti-trans um, kind of uh, sentiment out She's there. She's clearly a pioneer. And the way that yeah. she talks about her story and her experience is is just so deeply moving and and it's and it's important also to say this movie isn't like just kind of a history lesson this movie is a lot of fun and i'm thinking in particular <laughs> of the fact that these queens went to the metropolitan opera and stole <laughs> 80 wigs or something crazy i was like wow well, i'm like did, th did this just turn yeah. into oceans 11 oh my like, god like what happened that whole story is amazing a hundred percent yes yeah no it's really incredible and I mean, when we read about it first in the letters and then, you know, when 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 then we found Claude and, and Claude was so sort of charming in his retelling I love Claude of the in moment. This movie. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah, He's a treasure. <laughs> we were we were on the we were on the phone with Claude and he said, uh, I've got a little surprise for you when you come visit. I have a little <laughs> present for you because we were so obsessed with that that Met story. And so I won't give it away. It's, but... Don't give it away. It's so good. It's so good. <laughs> And, and again, it's like, you know, and for a film nerd like me, when James Bidgood shows up, it's like, wait a second, yes. are you kidding? So if anybody doesn't know, there's a movie that is a very important gay movie called Pink Narcissus. And it was at the time said, directed by Anonymous. Right. James right. Bidgood, who's a photographer, a really fantastic photographer, um, was the director of this film. And, and it's this cult movie, and I believe Strand, um, remastered it like a few years ago. And it is just one yes. of these like important touchstone gay movies that everybody like certainly in the LGBT community who likes anything about cinema needs to see it. And the director of this, the creator of this is one of the people writing letters to Reno. <laughs> just one of the queens in the movie. It's unbelievable. unbelievable. Like when he yeah. showed up, I was like, oh my God, you can't be serious with me right now. <laughs> And my, yeah, boy, my I, boyfriend was like, what? I'm like, no, no, I'll tell you later, but I cannot believe this is happening right now. Uh, that's so great. Yeah, Jim was such a charmer. I mean, he's so talented and so, and continues to create, you know? That's what's amazing with so many of these people, like Adrian, you know, Jim, like they're continuing to create and, and continuing to do their their art form, you know? It's amazing. Yeah, George George Roth is still out there doing, doing yeah, his George. thing. Doing his drag, you know, Miss Fire Island, nineteen sixty-nine, so great. Well, one of the things I want to talk about, like, is is this is not just about gay people. This is not just about drag queens. This is really about gay artists. The all of these people, you know, performers or not, you know, they were in their own way, whatever they were, they were all artists. And you don't you don't have that history. I mean, again, this is just like such a beautiful movie. And one of the other things I want to talk to you about is um, the voiceover people. You got to read the letters. Um, I'm a big fan of Cola Scola already, but, but everybody else, I mean, note perfect. Every single one of these people. Yeah, they were terrific. You. And, you know, just reaching out to them and, and, um, you know, having sent, we sent, we sent each of them like all the letters besides just what they were going to be reading. We just really wanted them to have a sense of who they were embodying and what that person's journey was and, and what their, you know, ultimate destiny was. And, um, you know, I, I agree, like, and, and by the way, most of them, like all one take, one take, one take, one take, <laughs> they got it. Yeah. Yeah. And we can't, and we can't ignore, uh, the graphics, uh, because there's so much of this movie, uh, is covered in graphics because like, you're reading the letters and you're seeing the words 
fly up and it's gorgeous and it's done by uh, my friend Grant Nellison who also did Circus of Books I've talked about him yes. earlier in the season yeah. um, Toddy Bauer uh, yeah yeah, yeah. Talk, yeah talk about working with this stuff Grant's amazing yeah I mean we were just I mean I think what was so important about it when we when I first saw the letters I know when Craig and Michael first saw the letters one thing that we were all taken by was the incredible penmanship and personality that existed in these letters they're so beautiful the doodles it's like they just jump off the page and um, we realized really quickly that we had to keep their integrity and we had to keep their, their true form, the actual, the actual penmanship, like the actual texture of the paper, um, which was really important to us, but we realized very, very expensive um, <laughs> and difficult to do because each letter had to be hand traced. And, um, and then the way Grant was able to bring them off the page, like have like the little images come to life and shimmy and all that stuff that he does. Um, I've not worked with a graphic designer that talented in all my 16 years or something like that. And something, somebody wow. who was so in tune with what, you know, he didn't miss a beat. It wasn't like he was just designing something. He was designing something in, with the emotion of what was being said in the letters and the, and the feeling that was trying that we were trying to con convey and a lot of times we didn't even have to tell him that he would just send it and we'd be like yay that's perfect <laughs> so um yes and he's just lovely and he's just yes. a lovely person yeah. so uh, cherry great. on top yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's so inspiring i mean you know these like because i think in the gay community there's a thing about like oh you get past like 50 or 60 and it's like what's the point of living like you know it, mm. people don't see what it is to be an older gay person. And I think that was also kind of undercut by the fact that like, you know, AIDS took a lot of people that would have been older now and out. And only now we're beginning to see what it means to be an older person and be gay and how it's not the end of anything. You can be an amazing dynamic person with, with a yeah. lot to contribute. Well, I think, yeah. you know, for a lot of us, you know, we missed out on seeing an entire generation of gay men specifically grow old, Absolutely. you know, so, Absolutely. so we had like, you know, like for Craig and I, you know, both men of a certain age, um, <laughs> but we, you know, <laughs> but we like, you know, we, we, we missed out on all of those. So like, like, like these people are really the generation, uh, uh, you know, beyond that generation that, you know, and it's just, um. It's uh, it was just so wonderful for for us to see also that all of these myths of what what gay life was like before Stonewall. You know, we had there's all these ideas that you know before Stonewall in 1969 there was no pride. There was everybody was ashamed. Everybody was in the closet. And then right. you 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 talk to these people and like not ashamed, not in the closet. Had long-term relationships, most of them, mm -hmm. um, loving, committed kind of things, and 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 great and moms. just great moms, <laughs> yes, good moms, good moms, and their mothers <laughs> at a time when that was not a thing. There was no P flag, you know, and 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 it just like it it just shows how wonderfully resilient gay people are, even in the toughest of times. And I think it's something that we can all be really proud of and proud of our history. And I love that you think that this movie would have a, a, like longevity. You know, it's already been compared in some of the reviews to the queen and Paris is burning. And we would love to be in that company and Absolutely. like have this stand as a testament to 
gay, you know, filling in the blanks of gay history, you know, at right the right time. Like we got these people, you know, at the last possible moment. Well, I really do believe that it is in that league. I mean, it, it's it just it moved me so much. And there's one last thing I want to talk about is who owned the letters. And I'm not going to say who. But it, I have to say, uh, just knowing, uh, my jaw dropped at the end. And that was, I know, I know we're Great. not going to talk about it, who it is. Um, <laughs> and, and a lot of people may not know who it is, but certainly I, I knew who it was. And, uh, and I had absolutely no idea. And it was just astonishing. And it, and it does kind of under, underscore your point about, like, there's a whole history that people don't know they think stonewall for whatever reason it's like oh and then suddenly gays popped out of stonewall it was like you know <laughs> like the police were there and then suddenly like you know a million gays flew out and like suddenly you know there have been <laughs> gays in stonewall like there were no gays before stonewall we all were miserable and you know whatever it's yeah. like nope nope there was a whole culture of gays and and drag and art um that was very vibrant that was not entirely underground that people knew right. where to go for this stuff mm-hmm. and we barely scratched the surface I mean, we, we say that all the time we, we right. had we could make three more documentaries with the stuff that we found and okay you know, please tried- i would watch i would i would <laughs> gladly watch all three documentaries or whatever whatever you got because <laughs> because there's there are so many stories that need to be told and i think yeah. that if you can tell Agreed. them as elegantly and as entertainingly as this um especially with the wig heists and stuff um, <laughs> um, drama, I, yeah, drama. Yeah. Like police so running around, amazing. Um, thank you guys so much for coming, and I wish you the best. Uh, oh, and, and, and is, has this gotten a distribution deal yet, or can people see it yet? Not yet, but okay. hopefully soon. Very soon, very soon. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot wait, and I can't wait for people to see this. And thank you guys so much for coming. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. Michael Seligman, Jennifer Teixeira, and producer Craig Olson. Thank you so much. The movie is P.S. Burn This Letter, Please. And for the last film we're going to be talking about, um, Drama Rama, one of the most fun movies I've seen all year at Outfest or otherwise, I have the writer, producer, director, Jonathan Waisaki, and star, Nick Pugliese. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. <laughs> I'm, I'm so excited to talk to you about this because I identified so hard with this movie. It was, it was simultaneously hilarious and painful. Um, Jonathan, why don't you like just tell everyone who hasn't seen this movie, like just kind of what it's about? Sure, absolutely. So it's about a group of uh, conservative high school teenagers in 1994 who are all drama kids, and they have their last murder mystery costume party before they go off to college. Uh, and um, a, a number of the characters uh, are sort of testing their identities and their fear about change and moving on to the next stages of life, including Jean, who's kind of the central character, played by Nick, uh, who wants to come out of the closet, but is terrified about what his friends might think of that. I love everything about this movie, and I'm not, <laughs> this is not hyperbole, I, uh, but the cast is just absolutely fantastic. So, Nick, how did you come on this project? Um, honestly, I um, saw the audition posted for it myself. And um, I have reps and everything, but every now and then I'll keep my eyes peeled for a project that looks that's, special. That's a good instinct. It, yeah, no, I, 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 was, <laughs> I, saw, I read the log line and read the character and I was like, oh, this this is going to be good. I looked up Jonathan, looked at his Vimeo, looked at all the other festivals he had done with his shorts. And um, 
Yeah, so I just, I submitted and then did the tape, did the director session and just was so blessed to get selected. It was, it was a really fast process, but. I was so grateful he self-submitted because (laughs) he was just like a gem to find. When I looked at this movie, every single character, and this is, this is how well this movie is cast. Every single character, like immediately I knew who this person was. And these were all drama nerds. And I totally like grew, like my, that was my high school. We did not do murder mystery parties. <laughs> I wish we had, cause I was a huge fan of murder mysteries. Now, Jonathan, you wrote this piece for Talk House, uh, which is you know, online. Uh, and I think everybody should look it up. Basically the headline is, don't look now or my struggles with autobiographical filmmaking. So I guess I don't have to ask, is this autobiographical? Oh yeah, it definitely is. It's uh, it's I I always say that I started with my high school diary, which is it had a lot of a lot of cringy truth in it. Uh, but I knew that if I could probably mine from that, it would it would bring up some rich uh, characters from the past. And and it certainly did. Um, how long did it take you to write this? Uh, the writing process actually wasn't super long. It was about a year in terms of writing and then doing revisions on it. Um, but you know, it's also not my first feature screenplay. Uh, it's the first one that's actually been made. But uh, I, I feel like it's it wasn't my it wasn't my first time having to <laughs> write and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite a script before. Well, I've, that's uh, the game. I've been yes. talking to independent filmmakers, you know, all through the season of The Outcast, and certainly today. You know, everybody has the story of like how difficult it was to make the film. Why don't you tell us like how long this film kind of took and like what it took to get it off the ground? So. As I said, this was not my first feature script, and I have tried to get other features off the ground many times for many years. And I saw so many of my friends, particularly queer friends, just do crowdfunding to get their projects off the ground and write something that could be crowdfunded to in order to you know meet that budget level. And uh, that's kind of what I did with this project is I, I wrote it specifically so that I could crowdfund it and just make it. Uh, which is exactly exactly what I did within the course of a year. Um, and, you know, I've had those projects where years and years and years go by and it looks like it's going to get made and then it doesn't get made. It right. looks like it's going to get made and it doesn't get made. And I was like, enough, enough of this waiting for somebody else to greenlight you. I'm just going to greenlight myself. And that's an important lesson that I think every independent filmmaker has to learn at one point or another, because at at some point you're going to get a project or you're going to come to a place in your life where you're like, nope, I'm going to do, I don't care how much it costs. I don't care how much we have to like get, we are going to get this movie done and for this amount of money. But if you crowdfunded this, then it costs a lot less than it looks like it does. There's a, there's a a little bit of investment after the crowdfunding, uh, but it's, but still this movie looks like it cost like, you know, at least a million bucks and it's like, and it it couldn't, and it couldn't (laughs) possibly, I know, I know in my, my, my mental head, it couldn't possibly have, but it's like, it is just the most fun and the most wonderful loving thing. So how long were you like, cause it's almost, it's all over one night, basically in the morning. Uh, and mostly in that one house, like how long, how long were you there? How long was shooting? How long did it take? Yeah, we were, I think we shot 16 and a half days. Uh, and yeah, and, and we were, it was all in Chatsworth, the valley. (laughs) It was hot as hell. It was was the summer. It was August. It was the exact same time the film takes place. Oh my God. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I grew up in Escondido, California, which is in San Diego County. And, um, I was, I was looking for, you know, basically a location that would 
kind of match the Adobe Spanish style stucco seventies kind of homes that I grew up in. It's very suburban, but not, not like, you know, California per se. It's very suburban though. It's really nice. Yes. Yeah. Finding a house where they haven't remodeled the kitchen or the bathroom. (laughs) It is a challenge at this budget level. I can tell you. You're going Uh, up against California real estate markets right there. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So we were very lucky to find the place that we did. Oh, and you were very lucky with your crew too. I mean, every like the like talk about the camera work because I thought that this was just such a elegant looking movie. Thank you. Yeah, that's Todd Bell. I've, I've this is my fourth movie I've done with him, and he's uh, he's fantastic. He's just uh, he's just an artist. Um, and you know, we we did a lot of planning to try to make sure that even though we were stuck in one location, we would make it look as interesting as possible and follow the sort of emotional side of the story as much as possible so that you didn't feel like you were, uh, you know, bored with the location, basically. So, Nick, I want to ask you, like, because yes. I have absolutely no... Because you... I, I hate those high school movies where they cast high school students and they all look like they're 34. Now, you are either, <laughs> like, 16 or maybe 21 or 22. I don't know where. But, I mean, the entire cast looks so wonderfully age-appropriate. But how old are you? Uh, I'm 24. No, you're not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Our table read was on my twenty third birthday. Well, wow. So, like, and you had done you had done some work before this, but like, is this your first lead role in a feature? Yeah, I by some work that's a very generous um, statement. We're, I had, we're very I, generous here at the Outcast. <laughs> <laughs> this was my first. I would say like real anything really. Um, <laughs> Not my first, like, set experience, I guess, but, like, actual role on a set. Um, yeah, my first, my first go. And how and how did you find it? Because, honestly, I wouldn't have guessed just watching Thank you. Thank you. That's, I, I really think that's all because of the other cast, the other actors who have done this for so long. I mean, it really was, like, because it's such a learning process. I mean, I think for everyone, every set... You, you know, you're starting every project, you're beginning at some point. And um, so I just was like watching like Anna Grace and Megan and Nico and just like watching them take the lead and following suit. And I mean, I learned so much from them and it was it was amazing, though. It was awesome. Well, and you all play off of each other so well. You look like, I mean, it just feels like you've known each other for, like, you know, years and years and years. And yeah. and I have to say, I you know, as much fun as this movie was, and I, I think I probably had more fun at this movie than any other movie I've seen this year. <laughs> I can't think of another. I, I left this movie legit choked up, and I did not expect that when I went to that drive-in at Outfest. <laughs> I was like there. I'm like, I'm going to see this fun movie. And people had seen it on the Outfest Now app. And I was like, oh, it's good. You'll love it. And I was like, I, at the end, I was like, oh, oh. I was like, oh, my God, what is wrong with me? I was just like, I was so vibing this movie. It was ridiculous. I love that. That last scene, it was um, me and Danielle shooting that. And I remember Jonathan was coming up in between takes and he was crying. And it's, um, it's very emotional. And if I would imagine that most people listening to this podcast haven't seen it, and I hope they do. But it is just it's a very lovely, lovely, lovely ending that is just pretty perfect. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Yeah, it, it packs it packs a, a surprising emotional punch. Mm-hmm. I think part of that, honestly, is is the fact I'm just going to compliment Nick here. <laughs> Take it. <laughs> you know what this character wants from the very beginning, and you're just 
dying for him to get it. Yeah. Which is just acceptance from his friends. Yeah. And Nick is Nick is just so good in the movie about you like caring for him and wanting him to have that moment. And I think I kind of feel like that's why it sneaks up on you is because he's just so good. Thank you. Well, I mean, and just, I mean, honestly, yeah. And, and the writing as well, Jonathan, you should take some credit because like that, that is it. You, you set it up beautifully. You don't expect that's the ending and that's the ending and it's perfect. And it's very hard Thank to get you. a perfect ending. And this is a perfect ending. Thank um, you. Nick, I want to ask you, because basically in in, uh, in the Talk House ep- uh, article that Jonathan wrote, where he talks about yeah. how this is kind of semi-autobiographical or largely autobiographical, you are basically playing Jonathan. So, yeah. I mean, how how did you prepare for this? How was that? What was that like? Well... Well, jo- okay. Well, there was- <laughs> just act like act like he's not here and he's not listening, and and well, uh, just be like, "Well, Jonathan, I mean, you can you can imagine the script is incredible. I mean, just from like reading the pages, it it you get so much um, an understanding of of these characters, and and Jonathan is amazing and uh, and so comprehensive and hardworking, and so he sent so many reference points and like an encyclopedia basically of of everything you could have thought to ask the answer was in this did you did you have to sit down and watch a lot of movies is basically what it is like you know you just sat down and watched like I mean, what what would be what would he you, would I'm, he would do the clips I think he like didn't expect us to watch the full movie, so he like did the work of like finding the specific clips of the reference that we had to do. The references, <laughs> the references, sort of are. There's a portion that's like the the giddy stuff that they're consuming, like Young Frankenstein and Heather's and Blazing Saddles and Clue. Uh, but then there's also this like art house stuff that they've started to consume, like the crying game and the piano and Robert Altman's shortcuts. Like, yes. <laughs> and, and so, you know, it's a pretty strange mixture of references. You have from... to go far to hear a Robert Altman shortcuts reference in a movie. That's a, I, I remember, I remember when that came out and that was like, I was like, Oh my God, this movie will be remembered. It's like, Ooh, this movie's not remembered. No. It should be. It's a good, it's it a is, good movie, yeah. but, but, yeah. um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's faded a bit. Um, so Nick, like you know, you are, and I've asked you before this, so I'm not outing you. You are an out gay man, <laughs> yes. and like, how was your coming out as compared to this movie? Did you have to kind of like bring any of that energy to it? It's so interesting. No, it was completely different. Um, I think <laughs> <laughs> I think you can understand. I mean, just even generally, generationally, um, I feel very lucky that it's a lot easier. I, of course, depending where you are, but I'm from. The Bay Area, the East Bay Area. So it's about as liberal as it gets. Um, and I've got a, an amazing family um, and friends and I have my whole life. And so it wasn't this this moment of, of coming out for me in my personal life. I didn't ever feel like I needed to announce it. I kind of just sort of was. And like when I realized that I was, I just was. And uh I well, like you're welcome, Gen Zer. <laughs> no, 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 we did all the work it's for you. Completely, it's not lost on me. I promise. I promise. Um, but no, but well, playing Gene, you know, it was, and that was my own personal experience. I know people who were in the closet in high school, and it wasn't um, easy for them, or even through college, and 
you know, it's everyone's personal journey, I think. But I, I could pull from my friends who I had seen them struggle with it. And I know some of the patterns that I've noticed about aggression or like, you know, defensiveness sort of. And so that's that's what I really wanted to make sure to bring to Gene, just this, he's constantly trying to just protect himself. And it, it just, it felt so real. And I have to say, Jonathan, you're writing of the character of the other boy, Oscar, who's this, you know, uh, he's very obviously gay. And yet he, <laughs> he has these semi-ludicrous, you know, defenses or like, oh yeah, that, what, what, I forget what he says, like something about banging a chick or whatever he's, it's like, it's the most, it's, it, it takes a good actor to act badly like that for some, for a character to act that badly. So, you know, hats off to Nico Greetham. Amazing. He's, yeah. he's fantastic in this film. And the three uh, girls are also just so wonderful. Yeah. One of the things I want to talk to you about is the editing because the editing in this movie is so sneakily clipped and really fast. This movie is really, 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 it just takes off and it never stops. And even the moments that are like heavy, like it's just perfect. Talk about working with your editor. Uh, so Christine, I've also, Christine Kim, I've also worked with for, this is my fourth film with her and third, third or fourth. And, um, she is, uh, she's actually in, been an assistant editor on big movies for a long time. Like she's done everything from Mulholland Drive to uh, the Trial of the Chicago 7 that's coming out this year. Oh, wow. um, I rely on her to keep the story straight when I get swayed by people's opinions about things. Uh, and she, I think she, you know, appreciates that I give her a lot of power and creative sway in the editing room because she's so good. Um, we, I honestly like working with her is so much fun that I wish I was just like paid to do that. <laughs> like I wish I was just paid to just sit next to her in her room all the time and just, and, and you know, with this film, I mean, we, you know, we just laughed our asses off every single day because oh, you can the tell. cast is so great. You can tell. The, it just emanates. I mean, it was like an embarrassment of riches every time we would go through the footage. It was like, <laughs> Oh, which of these five hilarious takes do we use? Because they're these kids are so funny. It's it's really, but it's really really tough to have something that feels this effortless. And the tone of this movie is really fascinating because you've got that you've got that like kind of mid nineties. Like what what year does it take place in ninety four ninety five or something? Ninety four, yeah. Ninety four. Okay, so you got this like kind of like mid nineties vibe, which is so like it's it's tactile. It's like you know Bill Clinton's still in his first term. It's just like you can just feel it. And yet it's like everything moves so fast and everyone feels so kind of extemporaneous that it's just like, oh, yeah, I'm here. And and especially on, on the but on the on the not the budget, especially on the schedule you have, that's like so hard to pull off. Yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of a lot of that nuance was in, you know, we we just did a lot of a lot of test screenings with little tiny groups of family and friends and, you know, kept tracking it to tighten it and was it just was it just about reducing like the kind of the runtime just getting it tighter and tighter and tighter yes yeah yeah it's it so just, important it did yeah and and you know making sure that you're you know those those like valleys and mountains are are getting hit emotionally and that the the you're not losing anybody because i think that's another challenge since it's an ensemble film is making sure that uh you know everybody's volume is at the right level so, you know, that is that is just a testament to, like, trial and error with a really good editor. Nick, when was the first time you saw the film? Um, oh, I want to say it was June. 
I watched it with just a couple of the other cast and um because we we had not seen anything we were not allowed to watch yeah. dailies or anything which you know my, this being my first thing I'm like I didn't even think about asking for any of that um I was just like oh I'll see it when it comes out um but but no yeah I watched it in June and it was just amazing it was so fun to watch it I that can't first even imagine time. and I'm bummed out that you did not get to see it with an audience because Jonathan because he's a vet of of Outfest and all these other festivals with his shorts you know we both know if, if this had been in DGA1 it would have brought the house down, like absolutely brought the house down. And um, I really hope you get that experience in the future, like maybe in a year or two or whenever, whenever this pandemic shit happens <laughs> to go away, because it's just such a lovely, lovely film. Thank you. I hope so, too. It's uh, I mean, you know, you've I'm sure you've made things where you're like, oh, this is where the people are going to laugh, hopefully. And then, <laughs> and then and then it's like, oh, oh, no, we're releasing this into a vacuum of <laughs> living rooms across America where we'll never hear whether or not that joke landed. So. It's just, it's just going to be one of these things that's just going to bubble up over time with all of the movies this year, because it's they're all going to, you know, kind of get out there at one point or another. Uh, in one way or another, but you know, you'll you'll hear kind of like in the future, like in the next two three years, like what worked and you know if anything didn't. But as far as I'm concerned, not much of it that's film doesn't work. I did want to ask you about the swimming pool scene because this is the one scene in the film that was actually a little heavier than everything else because one of the characters actually has a very serious moment, and it's it's kind of tonally actually there are two exchanges uh, that happen, uh, but it's tonally a bit at odds with the rest of it. But I. I was very impressed with how it was kind of woven in um, to prepare for that stuff. And and Nick, I don't think you were really kind of well. You were in you were in one of the, one of the parts of it. Um, yeah, I was but, more but, just standing on the outskirts. <laughs> but the but the heavy lifting was done by by a couple of the other cast members, um, including Megan Surrey. Uh, how how did you kind of prep them for that? You know, I met with each of the actors individually and just sort of went over what I felt like they needed to know about their emotional journey in the script. And, um, you know, I think for, for Megan's character, I, I sort of described her as, <laughs> as this unmoored boat all night in that she's, she's sort of like trying to find her center because she's so lost uh, in terms of, you know, what she wants and who she wants to be. Um, and that she ends up, you know, trying on a bunch of identities throughout the night. And some of them are kind of violent and some of them are... <laughs> kind of sexual and some of them are you know retreating into her 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 former self and so you know i think the important thing for me was grounding her in what she was doing and then you know everybody else just fell in line because they just knew they just knew what how they would react as their characters i mean it was honestly i mean they're just so good <laughs> <laughs> i just like <laughs> completely completely uh got out of that one by just saying the actors are good um, <laughs> i'm like you know what that's about the actors <laughs> and the actors are like you know what it's about us the writing no the writing i was i was actually gonna say the writing but i thought it would be funnier if i said us but you're right it's it really is the writing and and it's really rare and lovely when a group of actors that are this perfect comes together with a script that's this wonderful. So you're both to be super congratulated. I cannot wait for Drama Rama to get out there because people really just 
need to see it. There's a whole generation of drama nerds who need to see this movie and like laugh while cringing because that's what I was doing the whole movie. I was just like, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> These are references that I gave like all the time. Oh my God. That is the goal. The goal is to find our people. It is, it is <laughs> unbelievable. Thank you so much. Thank Jonathan you, Wysocki and Nick Pugliese. Thank you uh, so Drama Rama, you've got to see it. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. And this is a wrap on season one of The Outcast, presented by Outfest. I want to thank all the guests that have given their time to chat with me here on The Outcast this season. Thank you so much. Super, super special thanks to Alan Konigsberg. This podcast would literally not exist without you. Thank you, Alan. Thanks to Damien, Tara, Andre, Magali, Carrie, Kahea, and the entire Outfest team for all the work in getting our show out there. Thank you so much. Special thanks to my friend Jim Fall, who convinced me to do this and that this was a good idea that anyone would want to hear my voice, and Craig Lawrence Smith for all his help and patience. I love you, sweetheart. And thank you so much for listening and everyone who's listened to the show so far. Thank you for rating us five stars. Thank you for telling your friends. The Outcast is executive produced by Ismail El Sharif and Alan Konigsberg. Music by West One Music Group. The Outcast is mixed by Craig Lawrence Smith. For more information about Outfest, the film festival, the programs, and all the ways that you can help support LGBT voices, please go to outfest.org. The Outcast is a production of Milton Ventures Media and Triple Fire Productions. I'm David Kittredge. Thank you so much for listening, and catch you next season. 